Welcome to Absence Management Perspectives, a DMEC podcast. The Disability Management Employer Coalition, or DMEC as we're known by most people, provides focused education, knowledge, and networking opportunities for absence and disability management professionals. DMEC has become a leading voice in the industry and represents more than 18,000 professionals from organizations of all sizes across the United States and Canada. This podcast series will focus on industry perspectives and provide the opportunity to delve more deeply into issues that affect DMEC members and the community as a whole. We're thrilled to have you with us and hope you'll visit us at dmec.org to get a full picture of what we have to offer, from webinars and publications to conferences, certifications, and much more. Let's get started and meet the people behind the processes. Hi, we're glad you're listening. I'm Heather Grimshaw, Communications Manager for DMEC, and we're talking about gender equality in the workplace today with Amber Burnap, CLMS, Senior Absence Consultant with the Strategic Non-Medical Solutions Group at Brown & Brown. Amber wrote the article to Gender Equality and Beyond in Outwork Magazine, which provides an overview on this important issue and helpful guidance for employers. We'll unlock the article for listeners who will find the link in the notes section of this episode. And we've got a couple of questions here for Amber, so I'm just going to dig in. So some people get confused and nervous about saying the wrong thing when conversations about gender equality arise. What is a safe approach to jumpstarting conversations about employer policies to address these concerns? So I think this is a topic that is going to resonate differently um, across employers. And I, you know, I don't really think there's a one size fits all approach. So if we have listeners who are in an organization um, that's looking to jumpstart these types of conversations, I think it would be beneficial to maybe start with some employee resource groups, or if your organization has cultural groups, um, and really get a, a handle on how your workforce or organizational culture feels about these topics. So is it something that resonates with them? Is it important to them? You know, Heather, we have such a diverse workforce out there today. Um, we've got anywhere from traditional to progressive organizations. Sometimes it's a mix of both. And this input can help factor into the level of time and effort you invest as an organization into this initiative. So really just learn what your employees um, hold valuable from a policy design type standpoint, and then use that to help drive some changes. And in your article, you talk about ways paid leave policies can neutralize the existing gender gap and that the U.S. is ahead of the game here, which I think will come as a um, a positive <laughs> surprise to some. Um, yeah. Can you t- elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I think we can look at it from, from both aspects. So um, what I meant by that is that the U.S. has yet to implement any kind of federal paid family leave or paid sick leave, which does put us behind other countries. Um, where I, I sort of gathered this information from. So if we look at the nations that make up the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is basically a group of countries that discuss and promote socioeconomic policies, the U.S. is the only nation out of the 38 members that does not offer paid leave to new birth mothers. But that means the U.S. basically has a blank canvas to start from. So not only in terms of the duration of a leave or the benefits that's associated with the time off, but also the accessibility of that time off for different employee groups. Um, 
And also how the policy terminology may be defined. So we've historically thought about males and females, mothers and fathers. Those are the individuals uh, associated with new parent benefits. More recently, we've seen primary and non-primary caregivers. But ideally, we're looking to the individuals engaged in drafting these future proposals and writing these types of policies and hope that they can be forward thinking enough to create a policy that's more progressive and help to be able to neutralize these gender gaps sticking to terms like parents or some other neutral terminology without insinuating that the benefits are any less equitable just on the basis of gender. That's really helpful. I, I do wonder how many organizations are considering that as they're looking at their policies. And so I do, I love the fact that you recommend that holistic review of your policies mm -hmm. to see where you stand and to ask that question of your employees who can really guide, hopefully hope who can guide that discussion. Yeah, they, you know, employees really they have their own sense of values and you want to make sure that that's a fit with your culture. So I would definitely recommend polling employees, gaining their insight. Maybe they have some very valuable insight that can really help drive specifically where you should focus um, next steps. And that's that's oftentimes a lot of what we work with on our clients as well as gathering inputs from the folks doing the work at the organizational level to help drive some changes. And I would think even those efforts would convey to employees that an employer wants to be inclusive. Exactly. The, the employer is asking those questions, soliciting that feedback. And then, of course, the hardest step, I would assume, is making those changes. <laughs> um, that's where the real work begins. But I, I would think that that would go a long way or hope with employees to say uh, or to recognize they're asking the question, they want my input. Exactly. Yeah, employees, individuals want to be heard. If if you are going to undertake this type of project, I would encourage you to be thoughtful about how you may potentially implement some changes, just because if you're going out to employees now to ask for their opinion, they're going to wonder, what are you going to do with this after I give this to you? So having some sort of uh, closed loop to provide feedback, if, if nothing else, just make sure that you've got a plan for the future. I, I like that the reference of the closed loop to say this is what we heard you ask for and here's maybe our next step uh, so that everyone does feel heard and that they didn't spend time maybe mm -hmm. sharing input or requests and then think it almost seems to make it worse if if <laughs> yeah. someone asks for your input you share that input and then it's like well did you hear did you even look at it did you read exactly. it so my next question for you is is you describe some of the unique challenges associated with um, and the language you use is neutralizing the terminology used to acknowledge and refer to staff members due to multiple time off programs that are structured to differentiate between gender and sex. And I know there's a lot in that, in that question, <laughs> but I'm hoping that you'll say more about that uh, because I do think that that, that really drives or, or keys into some of the most difficult pieces of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I think you'll see this throughout uh, the article and hear it throughout our conversation. So I, you know, everybody can appreciate time off programs are challenging. Um, there's some efforts or some changes that are easy enough to make that could be impactful with relatively low effort. 
um, going through policies or communications and updating um, mentions of he or she or similar terminology with they or their or them. Um, but if we think about an absence, like an actual leave of absence, there's the potential for multiple programs to be running at one time. So if an individual is taking time off for the birth of a child, they're probably going to file for leave under the Family Medical Leave Act. Maybe their employer offers a paid parental leave. Now, and more than ever, at least as compared to the past. <laughs> um, so they might also qualify for statutory time off benefits under a state paid family leave program. You know, what we haven't said at this point is whether this person was the birth parent. And if it was the birth parent, um, they would also likely receive short-term disability and maybe their employer even offers an enhanced maternity benefit. So what we see with many of the leave management programs being used today <clears throat> is that they've been designed with I guess a male-female field, if you will, that drives the application of some of these benefit programs. So if the employer is offering an enhanced maternity benefit, they might be relying on that female indicator to prompt uh, that benefit being applied. Similarly, many of uh, our employer HRIS systems have this same male-female field that is used to share demographic information with the leave administrator maybe. Really my point is that there's just a lot going on behind the scenes that should be considered when making changes to any current processes. That's a great point. And so when you're talking about a field, you're referring to a software field, is that right? Or a form, a field on a form? I guess it could be either. I in I was personally thinking more so a uh, software field. Okay. And I asked that question because it does illustrate the the nuance to that or the steps that would have to be taken in order to not just assess but also adjust. If you're going to adjust your policy so that there is another option, so to speak, yeah. for for people who don't associate with that he or a she option, there there should be more options. Yeah, I've seen some changes occurring um, in the vendor community. Uh, for example, offering something like prefer not to say within the intake process, um, as opposed to somebody identifying as male or female at that point. Um, I think a lot of that's probably going to vary. Some of these processes will vary based on the employer's specific setup with their leave administration. Um, you know, we've seen it come up a little bit with the states. If we look at New York, they updated their paid family leave forms this year with a gender X option. So we can definitely say that changes are occurring. And I would expect that we're probably going to see more of these changes in the future. That's a great example. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah, I do think that that people as as we talked about earlier there is a an anxiety i think associated with having this conversation or knowing what to do next that would be that would be inclusive and wouldn't alienate anyone and mm -hmm. so i think the more examples the better which is one of the reasons why i was thrilled to see the two examples of the organizations that you featured in your article uh, that had changed their policies to be more mm -hmm. inclusive yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more of those changes. So I'm hoping that you'll share along these same lines. I'm hoping that you'll share some guidance for organizations that might not have assessed their parental leaves um, or any of their leaves and might still be using terms such as primary or secondary caregiver in policy documents. 
Yeah, so this is a question that I I have heard a lot. Um, I I think where you start running into issues um, specifically with the primary and secondary caregiver distinction is when you just assume that one gender or sex will always be one or the other. Um, I don't think it would come as a surprise to any of our listeners that females have historically been thought of as the primary caregiver. And if we look to some of the cases in the past 10 years, this is where Estee Lauder and J.P. Morgan Chase ran into issues with the EEOC. Um, so while we know the EEOC isn't necessarily a binding law, it is a persuasive authority that is considered by the courts when they are decisioning lawsuits. Um, and if we look to the EEOC, they suggest that the employers should distinguish between leave that's related to medical limitations from pregnancy or childbirth from leave for bonding purposes. And I guess if you would like, we can take a... <laughs> A brief review and, and summary of some of these cases. So um, back in 2017, the EEOC sued Estee Lauder because their policy granted uh, different time off to primary and care uh, primary caregivers and secondary caregivers. And the EEOC claimed that administering the policy in the manner in which Estee Lauder did discriminated against men um, because it violated Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Equal Pay Act of 1963. And then J.P. Morgan Chase had a policy that provided 16 weeks of parental leave to primary caregivers and two weeks to secondary. And in this case, a father was actually seeking leave um, as a primary caregiver, but was basically told that uh, mothers are generally considered to be the primary caregiver. And he probably wouldn't qualify unless he could provide some kind of proof that the birth mother had returned to work or was otherwise medically incapable of being that primary caregiver. And that case had a similar outcome to Estee Lauder. Sex discrimination was claimed um, and they were required to pay out a hefty settlement. So really all that to say that employers are able to offer special maternity specific benefits like an enhanced maternity benefit to birth parents. However, once you get to parental leave, that needs to be made available to similarly situated men and women um, on the same terms. The primary and secondary distinction sounds okay in theory, but it can start to get a little sticky when you are putting this into process, um, which is where I would caution organizations. So if your organization has this type of program, Definitely ensure that you're not making any assumptions around which parent is choosing to be primary caregiver, which parent is choosing to be secondary caregiver. Um, the J.P. Morgan Chase case is a great example of this because the policy allowed the employee to self-select, but they probably didn't account for that bias that exists among leaders who might be engaged as part of this process. So think about your current setup today and whether or not this may be a risk for you. We've got a general risk of bias within leaders, how they may interpret the intent of the policy. And then we have the risk of that bias, which impacts the actual application of the policy. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, that inherent bias, as you said. Um, and you talk in your article about some of the, the widespread gender norms mm -hmm. and some of the things that have just, frankly, always been there in these policies, seemingly. Uh, and so whether it is that unconscious bias uh, or if, if it's people who just 
make that assumption, as you said, which is dangerous in and of itself, and don't really think about how can we be more inclusive, that is certainly risky for employers, especially in today's environment. Sure. And I think it's a lot of this, again, is based on how you as an organization are structured. So if you do engage leaders as part of this process, you've got to account for the fact that you've got several folks basically administering this the same as you would potentially with FMLA um, to employees. So making sure that they're trained, that they understand that um, you've got a handle on on how they're approaching this benefit and conversations with employees is going to be very important. That's another really good point, because even if you have the right policies, if you haven't trained your people appropriately, and there there is a, either a misinterpretation or a, an assumption made that that conversation can can again be risky and dangerous for employers and i would think lead to liability definitely i mean if we think about it too in reality there might actually be a lot of extra work going towards managing this type of setup so as i'm thinking through this is the employer tracking who the parents of a child may be probably not i mean in my experience it's rare that employers are accurately tracking spouses who may be working for them for purposes of sharing time under the fmla so when somebody's applying for caregiver leave what information are they being asked to provide they uh, could have two cohabitating parents that are both claiming to be primary caregiver is anyone overseeing that process to make sure those employees aren't taking advantage of that is there an affidavit that may be involved as part of the, the process that anybody's completing? Is, is somebody following up or taking action on that as to whether or not it's it's truthful? Um, you know, there's certainly a cost associated with a move to a quote unquote en- enhanced policy, but it might be worth reviewing if some of these soft costs like the effort currently going towards uh, managing your process and then knowing that there's that risk of bias are impactful and recognizing there's a potential potential um, potentially favorable optics associated with uh, expanding this type of benefits. I'm glad you mentioned that. As people are looking for different employment opportunities, I would think these types of policies would be incredibly appealing and important. Uh, so in addition to being a risk, they could also be an asset uh, sure. I think for yes. employers. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot changed since COVID. I think everybody's looking for some additional flexibility today. Um, I think we're seeing that with some of the statutory programs coming out, especially where you can sort of configure how much time you get for different leave reasons all within your Uh, total allotment. So I think this is something, and again, check, you know, look at your population, look at uh, if you've got folks who are going out for birth of a child for caregiving reasons, and think about if this would resonate with them, because this could be a really impactful benefit. And I do think it also comes full circle. One of the things that stuck with me in your article is the fact that there was a data point, and I'm blanking on the exact percentage, but a, a worrisome number of people did not tell their supervisor that the pronoun or the way that they were being referred to was appropriate. And as a result, I can only assume would leave the organization, would not feel seen and recognized and appreciated. Mm -hmm. And so whether or not your employees are, are looking into this type of leave, assessing how you're referring to people and really evaluating whether your policies are inclusive does seem to span the gamut in terms of employee value there. 
Yeah, that's a great point. So this is, it's such an important topic and I, I really could keep you here forever asking you. <laughs> Well, we both love absence, so we could probably talk about this forever. <laughs> exactly. And I, I do really appreciate the fact that you mentioned earlier in the conversation, the multiple leaves that can be running at the same time, uh, which is another layer of complexity here for employers looking at this issue. And so really appreciate, again, the guidance that you offer in the article. And it does sound like the like there are some ways for employers to start small, as you mentioned in the piece by reviewing policies and asking the question to their employees. So sometimes I think these things can seem overwhelming. Yeah, I think it goes back, like you said, full circle to our our first our first uh, topic of conversation, getting nervous about saying the wrong thing. Start small. I mean, this is this can be very daunting, I think, if you you know, immediately focus on making as many changes as you can. Starting small, you know, making sure it's going to resonate with your employees. That's going to be impactful if you're not doing that today. So uh, that could certainly be a good place to start. Well, thank you so much, Amber. And again, we will unlock this article. So please check the notes section of this episode of the podcast so that you can read through Amber's wonderful article. And thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me.